Good morning to you all. How are you? How are you today? Doing all right? Nice. Nice to see you. My name's Darren, and uh, I am one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free. Excited to open God's Word with you this morning. If you're a guest with us, uh, as we do every week, we always want to say welcome. We never know who's going to be here or where you're coming from or who invited you or any of that, but we want to make sure you know that we're glad you're here. And if you think of yourself as a guest today, we love that. We want you to feel at home as a guest. But uh, eventually, we'd love for you to start thinking of yourself as family. And anything we can do to make that feel more like family and less like a visitor, we'd love to do as well. So make sure you come and say, hey, I'll be around after the service today. I'd love to meet you. And, uh, and we just want to make sure you feel at home. So we're diving into, uh, into Genesis 47, essentially. But we're backing up and we're looking at the end of 46 because we didn't quite get there last week. And I had said last week we were going to sort of look at the end and it ties really well with 47. I do want to say one thing as a, as a point of both, um, I guess you could say clarity and maybe a little bit of an apology. If you were here last week and you heard me teach, uh, I made a mistake and I've gone back over and looked at it to try and figure out what, like where it came from and I don't know. In the midst of my message last week when I was talking about the fact that God blessed Jacob by telling him that Joseph would close his eyes and that that was a kindness that God did, um, one of the things I said and I went back and looked at the recording and I said it in both services uh, was that, you know, some Commentators and theologians speculate that Jacob uh, may live another 40 years. Um, it tells us here in 47, he does not live another 40 years. It tells us in 47, he lives another 17 years, right? He's going to live to be 147. He's 130 at the time. I, for the life of me, cannot figure out where that comment came from. So I went and looked at my notes from last week. They're not in my preaching notes. They're not in my study notes. I went back and looked at all of my normal commentaries and the sources that I use when I'm preparing a message. And none of them say, hey, maybe Jacob lived another 40 years. There was literally not one of them who said that. So last week when I was teaching and I said, some commentators say that Joseph may live another 40 years. That just came out of my ear. I have no idea where that came from. I don't know what happened there. It might be, and this isn't an excuse, it might have come from being at Hume Lake all week. Maybe I was tired. I don't know. Maybe I was reading something else. But one of the things that's important, here's, here's, I'm telling you this so that you know, you've got it in your head, but this gives us an opportunity to reaffirm something as a principle that's really important. While we as a church affirm the authority and the inerrancy of God's word, we do not affirm the authority and inerrancy of any human teacher, right? So there are going to be times whenever you're listening to a human being, including this human being, where sometimes we get it wrong, or sometimes we say a thing that's not in our notes, or whatever. And in those moments where you and I make mistakes, or when we catch someone else in a mistake, it's always just a good idea to come back and be like, yep, I didn't say that one correctly. So there it is, I didn't say that one correctly. And it's just a good reminder for us to know that like sometimes we get it wrong. Now hopefully today, I'll keep my facts straight, we'll see what happens, and uh, we'll dig into this. Now, at the end of 46... Joseph and Jacob are finally reunited after all these years, right? We've been building up to this. J Joseph had revealed himself to his brothers in an earlier chapter that we studied. And now these guys are reunited at the end of 46. It says Judah goes ahead and Joseph prepares his chariot. He comes to meet Joseph, verse 29. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while, right? These guys finally embrace after all these years of separation and all these years where Jacob didn't even know that Joseph was alive. Now they hug each other, they embrace, and there's weeping. It's a, it's a beautiful reunion of these two. But we transition really quickly then into instructions that are given by Joseph to his family. 
And he says to them at the end of 46, hey, I'm going to present you to the Pharaoh. He is, you know, in charge of the whole region. And it's very important that you say particular things to Pharaoh. Because my hope is, Joseph says, that he will permit you to settle in the land of Goshen. It's a fertile area. It's on the eastern edge of Egypt. It will make it very easy someday for us to return back to the land of promise. Like Joseph is thinking all of these things through. There's a strategic nature to the way Joseph is thinking about what they present to the Pharaoh. He wants his family to be in Goshen because it's fertile, because there's plenty of room for their flocks, because it's closer to Israel where they'll be returning to Canaan. I think he also recognizes that some separation for the people of God from the people of Egypt will be good for them and good for the people of Egypt so that there's no suspicion and there's no jealousy and there's no envy. And so Joseph says at the end of 46, when you go in front of Pharaoh, it's important. He's going to ask you what you do for a living. And when he, you answer him, tell him that you've kept livestock your whole life because the Egyptians hate people who keep livestock. And that will cause him to leave you alone in Goshen, right? Joseph has this whole plan. Now, it's tricky when we're sojourning in a place. I don't know if you've ever done any foreign traveling. Or you've gone to a place that's new to you or the culture's different, the customs are different. You're trying to navigate it, trying to figure out exactly how to handle yourself well. Uh, Joseph is giving them some instructions because Joseph recognizes that he's dependent on the approval of the Pharaoh. Right? Joseph isn't saying to them, hey, we're just going to do whatever we want to do because God is on our side. God is blessing us. We have the God of covenant of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob's here so we can just go in and push our weight around. Joseph recognizes that God has called them into the land, but it is still important for them to seek the approval of the Pharaoh. I remember uh, when I was on tour, some of you know I was with a band for a little while in the late 90s and we toured for about five years. And most of the time we were touring, we didn't stay in hotels or fancy. We never stayed in fancy places, but a lot of the time we just slept on people's floors. We'd stay in people's homes, uh, on their couches or whatever. And uh, one time we were playing a show at a church in downtown San Francisco and there were several of us in the band, you know, so a lot of times there wouldn't be like one family that could take all nine of us because uh, there were five people in the band and four of us were married. So there were four spouses on the road. There wasn't usually a, a host home that could take all nine. So they usually had to divide us up. And on one particular night in San Francisco, I remember very clearly uh, the youth pastor after our concert, he said, okay, uh, Darren and Shannon, you guys are, you're going to go and stay with the Smiths and, uh, and you know, Corey and Kim, you're going to be staying over here with the Michaelsons. And he's divvying people up and, and he didn't mention our guitar player and his wife, Joy. So he didn't say anything about Tim, and we're all done. And uh, I think we kind of looked at each other, and we said, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> you know, where, where is Tim supposed to stay with his wife? Do you have a host home for him? We, need, we have one more couple that don't have a place. And the youth pastor goes, oh, yeah, sorry, I forgot. No problem. Yeah. So you guys, what you're going to do is you walk out the front door of the church, and you're going to go down the block, and you're going to go five, six, he says, you go about seven houses down and on the right hand side, there'll be this big two story white house. And he's like, you just go up to the front door. It'll be unlocked. You go in the front door, you turn immediately to your right. And there's like a little living room area and the couch in that little living room area has a, a fold out bed. And you guys can sleep on that bed just beyond that little couch. There's a bathroom you can use, but don't really, you don't really need to go anywhere else in that house. And Tim was like, well, 
okay, so it's seven houses down the block, and we go into the front room. The door will be unlocked. Where there's a folding bed and a bathroom. Are we going to get a chance to meet our hosts? Like, will we get a chance to say thank you for their hospitality? And, like, what do we do in the morning? What do we do with, you know, like the towels and whatever? And the guy says, no, you, you won't meet the hosts. You won't get to meet them. You just go in. Don't go anywhere else now. Just go in that front room. Use the folding bed in the bathroom that's right there. And then in the morning, you just leave, basically. Nope, no problem. And Tim's like, we're not going to meet the people who live in this house? And the guy's like, no. And he goes, well, there is a chance. He goes, there's a chance that somebody might come downstairs from upstairs. And he's like, if they come downstairs and they ask you what you're doing there and they ask you why you're there, you just look at them and you say, shut up and go back to bed. And they'll just go back upstairs. Well, Tim's like, Tim looks at me like, please, please do not make me go and stay in this house where we're not welcome. And we're going to have to threaten the homeowner, apparently, in order to stay. Uh, And so I said, I think maybe what we'll do is we'll just put Tim and Joy in a hotel for the night. And we actually paid for them to go stay in a motel because we didn't want them to have to go through that deal. I don't have any idea what was going on there. And I didn't feel comfortable asking the youth pastor. But think about the awkwardness of being invited into a strange place and then being told, hey, you need to act aggressively toward the people that are there in order to you know, save your spot. It was too uncomfortable and too weird, right? We told that story for years afterwards, right? Because it was just so strange. Here, Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, I've got a plan for you to live in Goshen. We need the Pharaoh's permission for that. And so it's important that you handle yourselves in a way that is respectful. And what we see when we get to 47, as as Jacob and his sons come before the Pharaoh, is that they do precisely what Joseph has instructed. And for our purposes this morning, as we look at this text, I would like us to look at it with eyes to see... That these sojourners are walking into a foreign place and they have a very particular posture. They have a very particular approach. I want to look at four key things that I see in 47 between both Jacob and his sons and Joseph that I think can be instructive to us. Because we are sojourners as well, right? I don't know if you know this or not, but as followers of Christ, our home is the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We have a place of residence, and it isn't this place, right? We are people from somewhere else, and so as sojourners, First Peter refers to us as sojourners, right? You might be familiar with that passage, First Peter 2.11 Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. I love the way that Jacob and his sons come into the kingdom of Pharaoh. And I just want us to look at it in the time we have, because I think it's helpful for us in figuring out how ambassadors live as sojourners today as well. The first thing I want you to see in 47 is the humility with which they approach the Pharaoh. Look at this in the first six verses. It says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Nobody's exactly sure why he chose five, and it doesn't tell us exactly which five he chose. But the the common understanding is that he chose five because it would be less intimidating than the full retinue, right? Than the full amount. That he chooses five as a way to sort of soften the idea that there are foreigners coming into the land. He chooses five from among his brothers, and he presents them before Pharaoh. Verse 3, Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? 
And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Right? I love the fact that they refer to themselves as servants. I love the fact that they ask, they request, will you please allow us to dwell in Goshen? I love the fact that they come as only five of them, right? There is, here's my first point today, as they come into this foreign place where they are sojourners, they come in with a posture of humility. They come in with a posture of service, a posture of request rather than demand. Right? They come in and they are doing everything they can to show that they are no threat. That they have the ability to be there without upsetting the nation with their presence, right? These five unshaved shepherds in the court of Pharaoh are not trying to be threatening. They refer to themselves as sojourners. There's this clarity that they're not planning to stay. That they have no aspiration for acquiring government jobs because of their connection to their brother. Right? There's no, there's no question of what their intentions are. They make it clear, clear, hey, we're desperate. We have no place to take care of our flocks. Will you allow us to stay? There's no aspiration to power or to rule. They're not looking for government jobs or hoping to leverage Joseph's authority for personal or religious gain. These guys are there and they need Pharaoh's help and they come with a humble attitude. It's not dissimilar from the way that Jesus comes, right? Jesus comes with a humble attitude. Could, could Jesus have come to the earth in power? Could he have come to the earth with demands? Could he have come to establish an earthly kingdom? Absolutely. And in fact, there were many who wished he would. There were many who were hoping that Jesus would be a revolutionary military leader. And in fact, part of what Pilate was nervous about when Pilate grilled Pharaoh was to find out whether or not Jesus saw himself as a physical king leading a physical kingdom. Was Jesus coming to establish some sort of military power? Jesus, very interestingly and informatively, I think, in John 18, in his conversation with Pilate, Pilate entered his headquarters and said to Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus is very clear. I'm a sojourner here, right? I, I am not coming to establish a kingdom. And if I were coming to establish a kingdom, I got some people who would rally with swords and weapons and fight. But that ain't what we're doing. My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not, is, is not within the borders of Israel or Rome or any other place. I love the fact that Jacob's sons and he come before the Pharaoh and they say, look, we're just passing through, but we, we want to live. Will you please allow your servants, we your servants, to occupy a portion of the land? I, it might seem like a thing that doesn't even need to be said, but I do think it's worth us looking again at the fact that you and I are called to be sojourners in this place, in this time, and to come with a posture of humility not only echoes the heart of God's people in the past, but echoes the heart of Jesus in recognizing that military might it was not his intent. I think sometimes in our own lives, we often can't resist the opportunity to leverage our knowledge of God or his blessing to gain power, control, influence, authority for ourselves over others. Sometimes what ends up happening is thievery and deceit and murder and hatred and enslavement and abuse. And sometimes those things happen in the name of God. 
right? Sometimes in the name of God, his people have said, well, you know, because God's on our side, we can take what we want. Or because God's on our side, we don't have to uphold our treaties. Or because God's on our side, we can enslave other human beings. Or because God's on our side, we can go where we want and do what we want and everybody else has to obey us. Or God has given us permission to kill you all. And I just want to reaffirm, for the sake of what it's worth, that anytime somebody uses God's name... In, in, in the endeavor of stealing or of going back on a promise or of enslaving or of murdering, deceit and treachery in the name of God, it is uniformly blasphemy in every case. Right? God is never on the side of deceit or thievery or enslavement or abuse. Jesus doesn't use the power he has to control other people. Neither do Jacob and his sons. They walk in with a posture of humility. They come in looking to be respectful and kind and to have influence in that place because of that. Pharaoh ends up welcoming them. Go back to Genesis 47. In Genesis 47, Pharaoh said, in verse 5, Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. They didn't come in making demands. They didn't come in saying, hey, God has made a covenant with our grandfather. And he's made a covenant with our great-grandfather. And he's made a covenant with our dad, Jacob, who's just outside. And you know what? If you don't, if you don't get on our side, you're going to be in trouble. They don't come in pushing their weight around, even though those things are true. What they come in is with a request. They come in with humility. And as a result, look at Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh says, hey, take what you want. Take what you want. Take the best of the land. And you know what? To be honest with you, I've got some livestock myself. If you know some people who can take care of my livestock, that'd be great. I got jobs for everybody, right? Pharaoh ends up giving them more than they even ask for. And I think part of that is their posture of humility. Not only do we see a posture of humility, but let's keep reading. Look at verse 7 and following, when Jacob finally is brought in. It says in verse 7, Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. I want you to just get a mental image of this for a second. This is a 130-year-old man with a beard, right? He looks a lot like me, right? 130-year-old man with a beard, and he's brought him before the Pharaoh. He looks like he's from another planet. They're all clean-shaven. They're all immaculately dressed. I mean, this, this is the height of civilization at this time. And Jacob is a nomad, an old nomad. And he comes in, and he's presented before Pharaoh. And Jacob's first response is to bless the Pharaoh, to bless him. Not only do they take a posture of humility, but I want you to see and I want you to be moved by the idea of taking a posture of blessing. Taking a posture of blessing. That Jacob's first move here is to bless the foreign king. Jacob blesses Pharaoh not just once, but twice. It says, uh, Jacob blessed him, verse 8. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days and years of your life? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days and the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. In the days of their sojourning, Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Why? Because Jacob understood, and we want to understand as well, that when God blesses us, he doesn't do it just for us to collect more and more blessing. 
that God had specifically said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, just to remind you of this, in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, right? If you didn't already do this when we were studying Genesis 12 the first time around, if you have your Genesis journal in front of you, circle that word so, right? That little tiny word so is really vital in this text. God says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great. And that's not the end of the sentence. He doesn't just say, I'm going to pour blessings into your life. Good for you. He says, I'm going to pour blessings into your life. So you can pour out blessing in the lives of other people. I'm going to make your name great so that you can be a blessing. The reality is true for us as followers of Jesus as well. Is it awesome that we have been reconciled to God through the shed blood of Christ, that Jesus has come and died on our behalf, that he's risen from the dead and extends to us who believe resurrection life by his grace? Is all that awesome to be the recipient of? Absolutely. That you and I can know God, that he hears our prayers, that he lives within us through his Holy Spirit, that he walks alongside us and guides us and directs us and protects us and loves us and calls us his daughters and sons. Is all that rad? Yes, it's all rad. Good for us. But we have those things so that we will be a blessing. God has done all of this in us so that we will live a holy life, that we would honor him with our life and breath. I've said before, we're not meant to be a reservoir of the blessing or the love of God. We've always been intended to be a conduit of the love and blessing of God. Little old Jacob, 130 years old, ready to die. He walks in before literally the king of the known world at the time. And his first action is to bless him. Nobody knows exactly what that blessing looks like. Although some speculate that the blessing may have been as simple as long live the Pharaoh, right? That was a pretty common blessing at the time, which if that is what Jacob says would under, would make sense why then Pharaoh would be prompted to ask Jacob about the length of his own life, right? So that's, that's one speculative piece when we think about this. We don't know how he blesses him, but we know that Jacob understood that even in this foreign place as a sojourner, he was called to bless. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25 says, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And the one who waters will himself be watered. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has freely distributed. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God, right? What Paul says in 2 Corinthians is God, God's going to fill up your tank. God's going to make sure you got bread in your cupboard. He's going to make sure that you know that you're adopted and that you're loved and that you're reconciled to God. He's going to give you all of these things, but not just so that you can have all these things. He's giving them to you as stewards so that as he enriches you, you then can be a blessing. Jacob and his sons come into this foreign place as sojourners and they come in with a posture of humility and they come in with a posture of blessing. Not only that, thirdly, back to Genesis 47, they come in with a posture of service. Look at this in 13 and following. It says, now there was no food in all the land for the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought or that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. 
And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of e- bought, Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the, for, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to the Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. This is a difficult section in this text because it's clearly pointing at slavery, right? What happens is that the people buy, the people of Egypt buy all the food they can buy and their money runs out. And so Joseph says, well, why don't you sell me all of your livestock? And so they sell all their livestock and then their money runs out and they're starving still. And they come back finally to Joseph and they say, we don't have anything. All we have left is our our land and our lives And we don't want to die, so we'll sell these. Will you buy these? And Joseph says, okay, yes. And in that way, Joseph ends up acquiring everything and everyone in service of Pharaoh, with the exception of the priests for whom they had set aside a portion that the, the Pharaoh gave them an allowance. We look at this and understanding what we do about the history of slavery, there's a, there's a point in us that recoils from that. Anytime we hear about slavery and anytime we look at it, we, there's, a, there's a sense in which our stomachs churn, and rightly so. Right? The forced enslavement of other human beings in every sense is always wrong. We would never want to look at this and go, well, here it is. You know what? There's enslavement and this is God's man who's doing it. Joseph was appointed by God and he, he thought slavery was fine and so slavery is no big deal. No, no, no. We want to be really careful as we look at the text that we don't make that mistake. What's happening is that this text comes in an encultured time. It comes in a desperate time where the people themselves come before God, or excuse me, they come before Joseph and they say, we don't have anything else. We would give our very lives in order to live. And Joseph makes a bargain with them in service of the Pharaoh. Well, we don't have to look at that and say, well, this is an endorsement of the forced servitude of other human beings. That's not what's happening in this text. So this is not slavery like has happened in the history of our country and other places. This is something different. There is still the enslavement of other human beings, but this text isn't even an endorsement of the goodness of that. It's simply telling us what happened historically because of the desperation of these people. So I want to be really careful when we see slavery in the Bible that we don't look at it and go, oh, well, well, God endorses this. And the reason we have to be careful about that is that Christians did that for thousands of years, right? For thousands of years, Christians looked at the Bible and went, well, slavery is there, and so it's no big deal. 
let's not make the same mistake. Let's recognize that, that these are telling stories of time periods and not everything in a text is prescriptive. Not everything in a text uh, is, is, uh, is telling us what is right to do. Many times it's just instructive. It's telling us what occurred. So we look at this, and here's the, here's the point I want you to see in the midst of this section. While this is not an endorsement of slavery... And we recognize that a central theme of the story of the Bible, a central theme of the heart of Christ, is freedom. What we do see in this case is that as a sojourner, Joseph has come in and he's dedicated him. He's dedicated himself to the service of this foreign king. He doesn't take any of this advantage for himself. He doesn't take any of this advantage for his own pockets. He doesn't line his own pockets or his own bank account. Everything he's doing is for the sake of the foreign king. Right? It's a reminder here of coming in to a foreign place as a sojourner with a posture of service, not seeking advantage for ourselves. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13, right after the section we looked at earlier, says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let's note that in Genesis 47, while there are things in it that remind us of our own story and our own legacy that should be stomach-churning, the people in this particular story, they thank Joseph for saving their lives, right? There is gratitude on the part of the people who become indentured servants because they would have died otherwise. But what Joseph does, he does not for himself. He doesn't do it for his own gain and his own advantage. What Joseph does, he does for the good of the people and the good of Pharaoh, to whom he serves, right? The good of Pharaoh. I am reminded as I look at this middle section of Genesis 47 of the story of the, of the man who found treasure in a field. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. There are times in life where we recognize something that's more valuable than all our stuff, something that's more valuable than our property or more valuable than our land or more valuable than our livestock. And what is more valuable is the the kingdom of God, the glory of God and the kingdom of God. That's the story Jesus tells in Matthew 13. When I look at the story of what's happening in Genesis 47, as heavy as it is, I look at the story and I recognize a group of people who were so desperate to live that they sold everything they had, including their own lives, in order to live. That, that is a decent picture of what it looks like to be followers of Christ. To give up everything we have and everything we are in order to obtain something of true value. Joseph essentially serves the Pharaoh beyond himself. The last thing I want you to see back to Genesis 47 is at the very end. At the very end of 47, after all of this, it says in verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. By the way, this is the first place where the the title Israel is used uh, for the nation and not just for Jacob himself. This is uh, not, not just a personal reference. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. There it is. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. 
the last thing I want you to see, not only do, do Jacob and his sons and Joseph come in, not only do they come into this foreign place with a posture of humility, not only do they come in with a posture of blessing, not only do they come in with a posture of service, but they come in with a posture of faith. And again, I get that in church, it's almost like, oh, oh yeah, okay, of course, faith, that's your final point, faith. But, but let's not miss it. Sometimes the things that seem the simplest or that seem like they least need to be said Maybe most need to be said, right? I love the end of this story. Jacob looks at Joseph and he says, I'm going to die. Remember, Jacob's been obsessed with his own death for a long time. He looks at Joseph and he says, my days are, are coming to an end. And when I die, I want you to take my body and I want you to bury it in the land of promise. Well, wh- why? Th- does it matter where his bones go? Shannon and I have a long conversation about funerals. I'm not a big funeral guy. It's just not exactly my... I don't, I like, I don't really want to have a funeral. I won't get into details with you, but I just don't, it's just like, it doesn't matter to me. I'll be with Jesus and uh, whatever. We can talk about it later, but I'm not a funeral guy. Jacob, Jacob doesn't care where his bones are, right? It doesn't matter where his body goes. It's not significant that your body be buried in this place or that place. Like that, that's not what he's aiming at here. What's going on with Jacob? Why does he say, I'm going to take my body out of this place and bury it in the land of promise? Well, Jacob, even in his old age, even as his death is drawing near, is doing whatever he can to point future generations to faith. He's using his literal last wish as a way to to draw an arrow, a pointing sign, a pathway back to the land of promise so that his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-great-grandchildren will never be confused about who they are, where they're from, who, who their God is and what he has promised them. He says, I want you to take my body and I want you to bury it back at home because it matters where his body's buried. No, that's not it. The point is that in Jacob's faith, he is also with whatever breath he's got left, trying to stir up faith in future generations. So even in the midst of a foreign society, a pagan society, a wicked society in many cases, what we see in the life of Jacob and his sons in these, final, in these final chapters, but in 47 specifically, is that Jacob is going, I want to use whatever I got left, whatever time I got left, I want to use to make my life a sign that points the people who come after me back to God. Right? I think there's a great learning for us in that as well. I think sometimes even as older people, sometimes we can get preoccupied with how we feel and what we want and where we're going and what God has promised us and the things we'd like to see happen and whatever. And in that preoccupation, we can lose the opportunity to use the final years of our lives to be active and intentional, to put our faith on display, not just for the sake of the foreigners that might see us from a distance, but to put our faith on display for our children and our grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren, that they would have a pathway carved by our lives back to the heart of Christ, right? I love that Jacob is worried about where he's buried because he wants his kids to have to go back. He wants his descendants to have to go there to remember the promise of God. It's a simple story, but as we look at 47 and as we get close to the end of our study in Genesis, I actually enjoyed the reminder this week that as a sojourner myself, as a guy who is a citizen of the kingdom of God, first and foremost, that I also have the opportunity, like Christ, to be humble, 
to bless others where I have the opportunity to not be a reservoir for the blessing of God, but a conduit of it, that, that I can be humble and that I can be a blessing and that I can be in service to others before myself and that I can, that I can be a man of faith who points others to a faith that matters as well. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you so much for the example of Jacob. He describes his life as short and evil. And that's because his life has been something of a roller coaster. He's had moments that he's embarrassed of and ashamed of, but he's also had spectacular moments of faith, moments of power, mo- moments of greatness, moments of, of humility and sacrifice and service. And here at the end of his life, I love the picture of 130-year-old Jacob in the court of Pharaoh, extending his hand and blessing the, the pagan king. Will you help us to be people who are faithful, who are serving and sacrificial. God, people who bring blessing wherever we go. People who absolutely recognize, God, that you have called us more than anything else to to have a heart of humility like your heart of humility, serving you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.